Welcome to the GateWorld Podcast. Welcome to a very special installment of the GateWorld Podcast. This is a bonus mini-cast. We're talking about Star Trek, the new movie. It's in theaters now. It is... Beat. No, it sorry. is awesome noodles. Awesome in a can. It's a great film. So uh, we ended up recording this uh, with this week's podcast, and usually when we do these little add-ons at the end of the podcast, they're like 10 minutes. And we thought that there was enough good content here that um, we wanted to preserve as much of it as we could. So it's all Star Trek all the time, and beware of spoilers. What did you think of J.J. Abrams' revisioning of Star Trek when you first heard about his idea to go back to the past and recast all the original characters as their younger selves? When I first heard that Rick Berman's uh, Romulan Wars Star Trek movie had been scrubbed and that they were going to do basically young Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, I said to myself... Oh man, this is this is not this isn't good. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't want to see Kirk Spock and McCoy again. I don't. You know, there, there's been so much done with them over the years. They, they've they've had six of the ten movies. No, do do something new. Well, Take we've also seen a lot new. of prequels lately, and and the Star yeah. Wars prequels were not received very well by by hardcore fans. At least those of us who were older who grew up with the originals. Yeah. Yeah, so, who who weren't laughing at the same jokes that seven year olds were during episode one? Yeah, didn't love Jar Jar, but loved Ewoks. Yeah, I was holding my breath right up until the first trailer, and not even the teaser trailer. Right up until the first trailer, I was like, you know what? I will see it, but I'm not looking forward to it by yeah, no, no means. And I grew up being known as a Star Trek geek, as a Star Trek fan. Yeah, Are you yeah. still watching Star Trek, David? Yeah. Now, I am a fan of J.J., so I went in optimistic about what J.J. could do with the franchise. I, I watch Alias. I love Lost. Uh, I've been watching Fringe this season. And uh, so I went in with that optimism. And I was also tired of where the Star Trek movies had been going, not just in the fact that they had not been receiving much critical success or financial success, but it seemed like Rick Berman and Brandon Braga were sort of driving it into the ground creatively, in my opinion. So uh, I was very much eager about somebody, please anybody, taking <laughs> over the reins and doing something different, doing something dramatic and risky and huge. You know, what I want for the next series is something huge like the Federation's been destroyed. And so the show is about put, trying to put the Federation back together. Unfortunately, that bears a striking resemblance to Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda. But something radical like that, I think, needs to happen to the Star Trek universe, and it, it really does in this movie. Beware of huge spoilers, because there's some huge developments that happen in, in Star Trek canon in, in this movie, and, and it's really worth seeing it fresh. Let's just say a huge rewrites, in terms of like one perspective of how you examine it, which is, I know, not the intent that they were thinking of, but when I saw the movie for the first time, 40 years of Star Trek television canon wiped out in an instant, and... Mm-hmm. Ambassador Spock is okay with it. What did you think of that? I don't know how much Spock is okay with it, and I don't know how much it's just the fact that, what are you going to do? The writer could come up with an idea to fix the timeline, basically, the reset button. 
the writer could do that, but the writer made the decision to do something really risky and alter the, the fabric of Starfleet history. Once you get into the characters' heads, you know, what the heck is Spock going to do? This is like a, the, the continuum thing, though. When you have history rewritten by an enemy, it cannot be a good thing. You know, I, all Spock needs to do is go around a star a few times and break the warp barrier or whatever it is and then go back in time. It's the Superman going around the world thing. Star Trek has had this for years. Every time something bad happens mm-hmm. on Star Trek, my dad always turns to me and says, have them find a sun and go around it a few times and fix it. We went back and got some whales and saved the planet, so why got can't some we whales. go back and That's right. warn everybody that Nero's about to show up? Which leads me to the conclusion that they have created a parallel reality in which to tell stories. That was the idea behind it. They didn't explain it to my satisfaction in this film, but I'm sure I'll read some J.J. Abrams interview somewhere that'll explain it. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the intent, to, to have a fresh start. And from that perspective, from that perspective, I am stoked. Vulcan yeah. is gone. Vulcan's yeah. gone. I saw it in the trailer. My, my friend thinks I'm nuts. I said, he said, how did you know what planet that was in the trailer? I said, dude, it was Vulcan. He's laughing. I'm like, what? He says, you know that it's Vulcan. I'm like, I've been staring at exteriors of Vulcan for most of my life. I recognize the planet when I see it. It looks like Tatooine. Come on. <laughs> it's just a little bit redder. I don't think it's, it's, uh, it's a parallel reality. You don't? A parallel universe. I think it, it very well could be. They could explain it that way. But the little bit of dialogue we got. Alternate reality is what they said alternate reality um, could mean anything i don't think that that's the way that the star trek universe operates yeah in terms of creating a parallel reality we've seen tiny bits of parallel realities in the tng episode parallels with Worf mm-hmm. wearing his red his and red in the mirror form. universes and in the original series um and ds9 and they enterprise had, they had episodes so yeah there are other realities that exist parallel to ours where things develop differently but uh, this this alteration to the timeline, I don't think that that's what's going on, uh, and I'm okay with that. Again, Lark. because I feel like I feel like something radical has to happen. This would not have been my first choice, but I'm happy that it, it has been done. Wow! I, because I in terms because... of canon, everything that you have watched your entire life with Star Trek has ceased to happen. Exactly, exactly my point. Everything that's happened in Star Trek history for 40 television years. It's still a part of history. It's a part of our history as viewers, and it's a part of, of at least Spock, at least until he dies, Spock Prime. It's yeah. a part of his history and a part of his memory. Uh, so I kind of feel like when, when uh, Spock is looking down on the last scene of the movie, uh, we are with Spock. We come from the, the future, that timeline, and his adventures, and the 24th century that he came from. And... You know, we're with him looking down on this. The timeline has been radically altered, but that is still part of our history. I could have done cartwheels down the theater hall when I realized, and I thought about it months ago, I sure hope we see the Kobayashi Maru test when I realized that they were going to show it. And I was like, during the test, I was like, give me more view screen. I want to see the Maru. I want to see the ship. Oh, cool. Look at the warbirds blowing up and Kirk going, pew, pew, pew. That was my favorite moment in the film. I have been waiting all my little life to Mm -hmm. see that. And it was so well done. A lot of it. And to have. find out that Spock created the simulation or mm-hmm. programmed this particular one. At least in this perfect. version of reality, yeah. We always hear, those of us who've been paying attention to the behind the scenes of the Star Trek movies before each one comes out, and I've been really paying attention to these since about Undiscovered Country. The producers and the directors always talk about going back and visiting Wrath of Khan 
and recognizing that Wrath of Khan is far and away the best film in the series. So how can we take elements from that in a thoughtful and respectful way and sort of try and duplicate its success? And you saw that a lot for Nemesis last go-around. When they crafted Shinzon, uh, they they wanted to kind of create a a Khan-like adversary for Picard. I think uh, one of the reasons that you don't care for Shinzon as much as I do is because you were looking for that. You were reading all the ins and outs about him um, him yeah. being crafted like Khan, and I wasn't. Yeah, and the result was, to me, Shinzon felt very manufactured. It felt like it was a very deliberate, artificial attempt to do that. But my point is, Star Trek, uh, the new film, 2009 Star Trek, does this, goes back and visits Wrath of Khan, but I think it does it in, a, in such a fantastic way because it's so subtle. All these little references... New Star Trek fans who are new to the franchise and, and seeing this movie, they don't catch them. It, it doesn't matter to them. But all these little references are so important to those of us who are long-term Star Trek fans. It's not just that we actually get to see the Kobayashi Maru. It's things like uh, Kirk eating an apple during the Kobayashi Maru. When he was, he was eating an apple in the Genesis cave when he was explaining it. It's like Spock Prime saying, I have been and always shall be your friend. It's, it's, you know, lines of dialogue like cheating death. Those resonate from the original films and especially from Wrath of Khan. My favorite sci-fi movie of all time. It's the one that starts with a small ship being attacked by a larger ship, which directly leads to a rebellious young farm boy who lives with his step-parent in dreams of outer space, only to meet an older wise man who knew his true father and asks him to join some crazy space mission and visits a bar full of aliens then has to go on a rescue mission on a really big ship in order to save someone with that partner he originally hated, but ends up becoming good friends with by the end. And then they end up destroying the evil large ship that can destroy planets. Then medals are given out at the end in some great ceremony. You know, Star, Star Trek. Or, uh, Star, Star Trek. Wars. What he is talking about is the fact that both of these films deal with age-old epic archetypes. Very similarly, too. Yeah, take a literature class, take a film class, and you'll see, you know, characters like Obi-Wan is is an archetype, and usually he gets killed off. And that's a remarkable thing. A lot of people didn't expect Christopher Pike to make it to the end of this movie. You know, those are archetypes. It's Obi-Wan Kenobi, it's Dumbledore, it's, you know, name a movie. You can There's one in Aragon. You can probably find one. One of the things that I think is an interesting study, and I'm probably reading way too much into it, but one of the ways that you can examine this is how, and like they say in Lost, the universe has a way of course correcting. No matter what happens in history, there are certain things that must take place. Now, it may be that history just wasn't changed enough or that there is some natural force guiding things. Kirk must take the Kobayashi Maru test. God or destiny or whatever you want to call it. Take command of the Enterprise. Pike must end up in a wheelchair. There are little things that have to happen. Obviously, I mean, it's for story and dramatic purposes and things like that, you know. And, oh, look at that. That's the same as that. And that's a nod to that. But if you look at it outside of that, I find that very fascinating. I love this theory of time travel and of of making changes to the timeline, is that the universe has a way of course correcting. Uh, You saw this if you've watched the third season of Lost and what's going on with Desmond. The universe has a way of, if you change what's supposed to happen, or if you go back in time and change what did happen, the universe has a way of straightening things out again. It's not going to be perfect, it's not going to be identical, but I think that's a huge part of what's going on in, in the new Star Trek movie, is Nero makes changes, and let's count them. He makes pretty radical changes uh, in the destruction, of the, the destruction of the Kelvin, 
uh, which includes the death of George Kirk. George Kirk. Um, the destruction of the fleet in orbit of Vulcan. Lots of rocketettes fresh out of the Academy. No, they weren't even out of the Academy yet. They were called into active duty because of the emergency. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And destruction of Vulcan is obviously the biggest one. Yeah, I mean, Amanda Grayson dies. Mm-hmm. That was huge. Bunch of Klingon ships, but who cares about them? Yeah. So these major changes in the timeline, and then we see, you know, Kirk, Spock, Uhura, Sulu, Chekhov, Scotty, all these people are getting back onto the Enterprise, and actually, compared to the original timeline, it happens sooner. It happens sooner. Much yeah. sooner, years sooner. One of the criticisms that I've, I've seen leveled at this movie is the happenstance, the sheer coincidence of the fact that Kirk ends up on this ice planet and wanders into a cave and finds Spock Prime, Spock. the original yeah. Spock, who helps yeah. him get back onto the ship. Huge coincidence, huge leap that you have to take. Uh, the second time I watched it, I really recognized the way that Leonard Nimoy played Spock's incredulity at the whole coincidence of it all. It's like, how did you find me? He's got a couple of lines like that. And that really started to illustrate the way to me that I think it's in the film they're trying to show the universe is course-correcting itself. It's not the writers uh, using one of their it's not a massive coincidence points uh, and getting Kirk onto that planet and into that cave. It's The writers, I think, are saying to us, the timeline's been altered, but the universe is is bringing it back together. It's, it's course-correcting. Mm-hmm. The universe puts Spock in Kirk's path because now Spock from the future is the only person who can solidify past Kirk and Spock's relationship. Yeah. He gives him everything that he needs, including Montgomery Scott's formula for, for inter-warp beaming, mm-hmm. uh, to, to get back to the ship and to preserve destiny. Yeah, destiny. It's a bitch, ain't it? <laughs> <laughs> if we take that, for, I'm, I'm just totally geeking out right now because I'm talking about this so seriously if we take that as granted that that in this altered timeline the universe is course correcting how is that potentially going to impact the the hundred plus years of federation history that we've lost maybe if the universe is course correcting it means the farther away we get from nero and those incursions time is going to settle back down and we're going to get the same crew on the enterprise d and we're going to get the same people on DS9. Um, there are major factors like the loss of all those Vulcans. So all the Vulcans that we see in the future, Tuvok and Vorik, maybe their ancestors were killed. Maybe they weren't. We know that there there's a colony of, 10, of Vulcans now. It's about 10,000 strong. So, you know, maybe Tuvok's line is preserved and the universe can course correct Tuvok and get him, get him uh, back on Voyager. But I don't think that it's an absolute given that all that history is lost. Yeah, and just we as viewers are exposed to very small portions of the future as well. So that doesn't mean that, oh, we're going to get lucky and all the pieces that we specifically have seen are going into play. This is ex- we are extremely nerding out about this. Oh, yeah. You know, this is, this is a piece of what this is, is an, in- an intentional restart of the Star Trek series to make more money. It's, when it boils down to it, that's what it is. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a reinvention in order to be able to make more movies, in order yeah. to be able to take this cast and do different things. You don't have to do The Enemy Within or The Man Trap for the next Star Trek movie. The uh, production values, extremely well done. J.J. Abrams is wonderful with the camera. It's not like Michael Bay where it feels like it's shaky camera for the sake of shaky camera, in my opinion, mm-hmm. of, 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 that, of those types of movies. 
Um, there was one shot where shaky camera on the VisFX bothered me, and it's right at the end when the Enterprise is trying to break free of the gravitational pull. It's a long, it's a distant mm-hmm. shot of the Enterprise. Don't get me profile. started about red matter. And I would like to see the ship a little bit more clearly in that instance. But yeah, yeah. I love the way it was shot. They obviously spent a lot of money on this movie. I think the budget was about 150 million. Yeah, and I can guarantee you they spent at least that in advertising. Oh yeah, big budget movies always, they spend about as much in marketing as they do on the production budget. So think about that. It's Paramount and their partners spent probably $300 million getting this movie to you. That's why it's very important to buy it on DVD because that's when they truly begin to recoup their sales. There isn't any point where they start rolling in this dough. Almost every single cent is spent. So yeah. buy it. You really like it. It's terrific. In in a week, it's past a hundred million dollars in the U.S. box office, and it's it's over a hundred and over a hundred and fifty million internationally as of week one. So it's doing really well. Not only is it doing uh, far and away better than any past Star Trek movie, but it's if you look at the the opening box office numbers, uh, boxofficemojo.com has a chart of all the Star Trek movies. It's, and the numbers.com. You know, uh, Star Trek, the new one, is literally the opening is like three or four of the old movies put together. I know that's not yep. adjusted for inflation, but but it's doing gangbusters. And I love the fact that Star Trek is becoming mainstream again. And people who... I saw the movie with people who had never seen anything Star Trek. And they loved it. Yep. Yep. But to be to be fair, the nature of the movie and what you see in it is very by the books. There is nothing about the film that is absolutely mind-blowing. Everything that I saw in the movie, nothing, none of it blew my mind. It is a very, very by-the-books film. For me, who has been watching Star Trek all my life, it was, it was very um, – I found it as very by-the-numbers in mm. terms of the film. It was very well done and very – it was spectacular, but it, but it was very by-the-numbers for me, everything that I saw. That doesn't mean that I won't see it a third time in the theaters. That's just, that's just how I feel according to the plot. And one of the things that most mm. disappointed me, to, to lead into what you've been wanting to talk about, one of the things that most disappointed me was the one-dimensionality of Nero. Mm-hmm. Uh, until you go and read the comic book, it expands on, on Nero as a character and ultimately as a villain, which it, obviously they wrote the comic book because in some way they felt it was lacking in the movie. Um, and it also explains where he came from and having to deal with the Enterprise-E and having to deal with Worf and Data and Geordi and all the others. Mm. Um, but you found Nero much more interesting than Shinzon from Star Trek Nemesis. And I, who specifically avoided any press or any lead-up to Nemesis, found Shinzon extremely compelling. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say I didn't like Shinzon. I liked him. I thought Tom Hardy did a great job with the role. Uh, but at, at the end of the day, he seemed to me he was just kind of a spoiled brat who was looking for his his piece of the pie. Nero was much more of a... I mean, this guy lost his planet. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. Um, maybe a lot of it is, is just Eric Bana and the intensity that he brought to the role. Nero doesn't have a whole lot of dialogue. He has some one of my favorite lines in the movie. Hi, Christopher. I'm Nero. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of out of nowhere. Oh, man. But yeah, I, I had to ask you, as somebody who had read the, the prequel comics to explain to me this this disaster that happened with the star going nova in the 24th century because i thought that spock's little mind meld didn't quite explain it to my satisfaction it seemed like they they saw that it was coming and they saw that it was a threat to romulus and obviously with astrological phenomenon you you can time things pretty well Uh, but Mm -hmm. it caught them off guard 
and they couldn't get there in time. So Spock's line is something like, suddenly Romulus was destroyed. Yeah. If you are a, a Star Trek fan, or you are a huge film of this movie and kind of want to know where it came from, get the four prequel comics or the or the binding comic together. You can get it on Amazon for like 13 bucks. I I bought it. I found it extremely compelling. There if you're a big Star Trek fan, you're going to notice a lot of interesting little tidbits. If you notice that um the Narada kind of looks like technology that you've seen before, it is. It's Borg. Hmm. It's Borg technology. Data is back and it's and it explains what happened with B4. Um, some of those things that we already that that we kind of knew were going to take place had Star yeah. Trek continued uh, yeah. on with um, with more next generation movies. Um, they kill Worf, but other than that, you know, there's 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 some really really interesting stuff, and it's worth checking out. I shall look for it at my local comic store. Picard's relationship with Spock yeah. uh, is is faithfully kept intact. And uh, all those little things like that really make the comic book a, a good read. It's still a comic book, you know. It mm-hmm. still has it still has a cheeky comic book feel to it in some cases, but it's 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 a great read. It's a great hundred page read. The cast in this movie I thought was was almost perfect. Chris Pine and Zach Quinto I loved. I thought they they did a fantastic job of embodying those characters, and I can get on board with a prequel if if you think of it in terms of. These characters are now old enough in terms of they've been around for storytelling long enough, uh, and they have such a mythic quality about them that, you know, you could do sort of like a bond with it, and every, every you know, decade or so, a new actor can come along and give a new take on who James T. Kirk is, and I could be okay with that. Those two did great. I loved the, the reimagining of Scotty with Simon Pegg was pretty drastic. Young Scotty is very different from the Scotty that we see in the original oh, yeah. series. Uh, I like this ship. That guy was so funny. Ironically, actually, the one character that I I love the actor, but people have talked about how fantastic Carl Urban is as as Bones. Uh, I didn't see it. I wasn't sold on that character until about 30 seconds after he was introduced when he said, the wife left me nothing but my bones. I said, oh, yeah, I buy it. I believe it. And uh, it was a little bit awkward, you know. You could see that he was doing the thing with with putting an an arm on his elbow and his and his yeah. his fingers up to his face. So there was a little bit of that, but I bought it. I really did. And I, I'm I'm sorry that you didn't fully. I love Carl Urban as an actor. Michael Giacchino. Giacchino. Giacchino is a name that we should all know and learn how to pronounce. <laughs> the moment when I realized that this film was going to be awesome, and that they were absolutely taking the source material seriously with all sense of gravity that it deserves was Michael Giacchino's score over the title Star Trek after the Kelvin has been destroyed and James Kirk has been born that score over that title just said said everything to me and there are a ton of little nods throughout the picture when characters are beeping aboard ship and the, the warbling sound of the transporter and one of his scores is completing and you hear he's paying respect to Sandy Courage and that was just great mm-hmm. it was great that it was being taken so seriously mm-hmm. lots of little moments in there that as a, as a longtime Star Trek fan you're, you're only going to notice them if you're a longtime Star Trek fan uh, Admiral Archer's prize beagle 
oh man, prize winning beagle. That was yeah. fantastic. That he made the beagle disappear and it still hasn't come back. <laughs> this movie is so good. I the first time I saw it, I loved it. The second time I saw it, literally, I was, uh, you know, watery eyes. I was verklempt the entire way through because of the emotion, because of the music, because it it treats Star Trek with such respect. And Star Trek is back. What more can you say? Winona was giving birth to to Kirk the first time I was watching the movie, and and George is piloting the Kelvin into the Narada. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time I was watching it, and Giacchino's uh, soundtrack is playing. And I touched my face, and my eyes were watering. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. This mo- movie isn't even ten minutes in yet, the first time yeah. I've seen it. This is a yeah. movie that I wasn't planning on rooting for, and I'm tearing up. Yep. This is Wait till you have kids, my friend. I, oh, was, I was crying. Five minutes into the movie, I was crying. Oh, man. It's so. I think this movie is almost pitch perfect. I have a few nits here and there about about continuity, about about some of the acting choices, but I think this movie is nearly pitch perfect. And Paul McGillian, Paul McGillian is there. He did a good job. He did. Way too short, but he did. He's the Starfleet officer who's directing all the cadets to their ships and their shuttles. Look for him if you haven't seen him. Yeah, I thought it was great. The, the quarters are dark, and you see two silhouettes kissing, and you turn on the lights, and it's an Orion. Uh-huh. <laughs> All my friends were like, oh, look at that. It's a green girl. It's a green girl. Like, yes, it's an Orion. Get over it. Uh, yeah, and I was surprised that there was an Orion in Starfleet. That's what took me off guard was not the naked green chick, but the fact that there is an Orion in Starfleet. I loved the deliberate attempt to show so many different cool alien species. Really, for the first time, they were really going out of their way to to stick them in there every once mm. in a while, and I think it's great. One of my favorites was uh, when when Sulu leaves the parking brake on, and then the 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 alien with the long brown head turns to him and blinks really fast, like, "What are you doing wrong? This ship should be going into mm-hmm. battle." And that's another one of those things, you know, another one of those fake things. Mm. The the nurse woman at the beginning on the Kelvin, who yes, deliver Kirk with the giant eyes. It's just subtle, and then she turns into the camera, and you go, "Whoa, that's not human." Exactly. One of the other things I want to mention is is especially props to Chris Pine. There are a few lines of dialogue, and when I saw the movie, there's this one that stuck out to me that said, "Man, that just that's James Kirk," and it gave me chills because it was so reminiscent of Shatner's delivery. And these actors have have said specifically they they're not trying to do impressions of the original mm-hmm. actors, but they're trying to, you know, embody who the character is. And mm-hmm. um, then I went online and started reading after I saw the movie, and other people picked up on a totally different line. The line they picked up on was at the end where Kirk walks onto the bridge and, and says, Bones. And that's a, that's a great Shatner delivery, calling him Bones. Bones! Uh, the one that caught me was um, when Kirk and Spock were, they were either on the Narada or they, were, they had just found Spock's ship on the Narada. Kirk was getting ready to leave Spock. The way he delivers his name, he says, Spock. And just uh, that holding out the, the the vowel in Spock's name. Did you notice that the um, that the chair and the front of the jellyfish uh, make the symbol of the Idic? No. Yep. Yep. The triangle and the circle. I guess I don't know what the symbol of the Idic looks like. First thing I, I saw, the first time I thought, oh, it's the Idic right there. I'll be darned. The shot, the angle of it, everything. It, it was built by Vulcans. <laughs> 